Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I'd like to talk about transforming suffering into happiness. Sounds good. <laughs> and I want to uh, hmm, start with a contemporary prayer that um, my good buddy Howie Cohn first turned me on to. <clears throat> That's now a, a greeting card. I saw it in a store, so it's in public domain. <clears throat> Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes I'm going to get out of bed, and then I'm probably going to need all the help I can get. Amen. We might have all kinds of ideas of where happiness lies and what we need to have it for ourselves, but this is hard to translate the ideas into experience. And I wanted to talk tonight about just how to do that and actually how what we're doing here is doing that. Uh, last time I had the chance to, uh, to share a, a talk, I uh, was talking about the power of intention and uh, particularly focused on the aspect of intention um, having to do with aspiration. And tonight I want to focus um, on the more subtle aspect of intention, which is volition, which is happening in every moment. As that line I mentioned last time, the Buddha saying, intending is karma. By intending, we create karma through body, speech, and mind. And to understand how this works, we look at the second foundation of mindfulness that um, we've discussed, Miyoshin uh, discussed when she was going through her morning reflections, and it's come up a few times in the talks. Remember that second foundation of Vedna, of the feeling tone of experience, that in every moment there is a feeling tone or a flavor of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. That's just the way it is. It's not good or bad. That's just the way life is. When we're not mindful, when we act out of conditioned habits that are less than clear, 
when we are experiencing a pleasant moment, what do most of us do? Grasp. We want it. This feels so good. Let's keep it. How do I perpetuate it? That's grasping. When an unpleasant moment comes, what do most of us do? This is a rhetorical question because I know we all know. We push it away. We don't like it. Aversion. Anger. Contraction. Away from it. Just the way most of us are conditioned when there's not clarity. When there's a neutral moment that doesn't captivate our attention, what do most of us do? We miss it, kind of space out, lost in our minds or wherever we happen to be lost in. And we are experiencing delusion. These three are the roots of suffering, grasping or attachment, aversion or hatred, and delusion or confusion. And that is happening in every moment that we are reacting in that way. We're planting those seeds. If we're mindful when there is a pleasant moment's experience, rather than grasping, we can be here with it, fully allow it and open up to it without trying to perpetuate or hold on to it. That's simply appreciation, which is different from grasping. That is a moment of non-grasping or non-greed. When there is a moment of unpleasantness, instead of pushing away, if we are mindful, we can have another response of allowing it, opening up to it, learning to be with it, not fight or battle it, but just see this moment is like this. That is a moment of non-aversion or friendliness, openness, kindness with the moment. And when there is a neutral moment, if it is not, if we are mindful, if we're present enough, then that is just as good as any other moment to pay attention to. Oh, and it's like this. Oh, there's this moment. Brushing the teeth or lifting my foot, putting it down. That is a moment of non-delusion or clarity where we're present for the experience and not identifying with it, not taking ownership of it as me or mine. That Those responses, non-grasping, non-aversion, non-delusion, are the three sources of happiness, of wholesome karma. So in every single moment, we can choose if we realize that we have a choice and we're training ourselves and we're present to 
go for either suffering or happiness. Now, just to give you a sense of how powerful each moment is, every moment we're planting seeds, karmic seeds, that bear fruit. And the example that um, I use, I'll use two different examples. Just think of something, of a, some experience, maybe in the last couple of days or somewhere, sometime in your life, where there was um, either a, you got caught, you weren't so present in grasping and wanting attachment or aversion or delusion, okay? And you, you really got caught. See if you can think of somewhat, some incident somewhere in your distant past that happened to you sometime in your life, okay? And where you didn't act so skillfully. Okay. So you got something in your mind? Okay. Think back when you were in the middle of that moment, or maybe right after the moment. <clears throat> how did it feel? Probably not so good. And suppose actually for 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 this uh, exercise, it, it can be helpful to think of it one where there was a relational, where there was somebody on the receiving end, um, but you can extrapolate for yourself. The energy that would come back to you from somebody on the receiving end, if you didn't act so skillfully, was probably not, oh, thanks for the feedback, or that it probably comes back to you in kind. So there's suffering in the moment or right at the, at the time the moment is occurring. There's coming back to us that karmic boomerang. The likelihood of that a reoccurring in a similar situation is greater because we've just practiced that. We've reinforced it and we've planted that seed. And so we are practicing cultivating that habit. So that's another source of suffering. We're planting that seed for it to reoccur. And when you just thought back on it and remembered it, how did it feel? Ooh, yeah, I did do that. So when you remember the unskillfulness, once again, there is suffering. So at least four ways that unskillful act creates some um, suffering to some degree or another. Okay? Now, I won't leave you here. Okay? So now, on the other side, think of something that you, a time when you acted really skillfully. Maybe it was a a, a random act of kindness or some thoughtfulness that you did with, with somebody that you weren't trying to get any strokes for. It just kind of came out of you. Really wholesome. Okay. Think of something. Okay. Everybody got something? Please. Okay. In the moment that you were in the middle of that act, how did it feel? 
felt really good, probably, right? The energy that comes back to you from the person on the receiving end is probably one of real connection and appreciation. That feels good, too. The likelihood of you doing that in similar situations is greater because you've planted that seed. And when you just reflected back on it, how did it feel? Probably felt pretty good. Oh, that's, that's kind of nice. That came out of me. So four ways that you are planting the seeds of happiness when you act from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. It's amazing. We have this choice in every single moment when we see how clearly it is. It's not that we're trying to be some kind of holy person or saint. It's just, oh, this is not going to feel so good. Oh, this will feel so good. So just in a very pragmatic way, we can see that we are creating, we can choose to create our reality in any moment. So now I'd like to go a little bit more in depth into each of these three possibilities. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And flesh out the, the different dimensions of them. First, non-greed, choosing to not grasp. It's so subtle, you know, so seductive when things feel good, we want to go for them. And the irony is that when we are in the middle of grasping, we can't even appreciate what's here right now. And I remember... Um, I sometimes tell this story, so I'm going to share it with you because it's a whole new group of people, except for a couple who might have heard this before. When my son, who is now 19, um, was two and a half, uh, and we were at a retreat. I was teaching a retreat down in uh, Yucca Valley where we would, I think I mentioned it last time, each spring we'd have a retreat down there. And this one day, we were in the staff room uh, at, it was snack time, and I was hanging out with him. And uh, he, there was this big bowl of luscious strawberries, and he, it was his, like his favorite thing. He's always loved strawberries, and it was like nice, big, juicy, organic strawberries, right? And he was like a kid in a candy store, so to speak, in a strawberry store. And there he was, you know, just kind of reaching you know, one after another. I wanted him to learn how to be mindful and chew the strawberry in his mouth before he would reach for the next one. Naive father that I was for a a two-and-a-half-year-old. And as he's kind of reaching and going, you know, one after another, I said, now, Adam, just just chew the one in your mouth. Just just wait. Just chew that. And there was this moment that's indelible in my memory with this huge, luscious strawberry in his mouth and I'm holding the the rest of the bowl away and he's reaching out and he's going, strawberry! (laughs) That's the predicament that we find ourselves in. We can't even taste the one in our mouth when we're so hooked on 
the next one, missing out on the next one. And we get so many messages from our culture saying, this is going to really do it. Oh, you think you got it? Okay, now try this. I want to share with you an ad that somebody gave me a, a, a while ago that shows the conditioning that we're up against. This is an ad called The Gold Shivers. Right, this beautiful woman all covered in gold. And this is what it says. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And then it's a two-sider, so you get to see the, this while I'm reading the other side. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. We get, according to one article that was in Inquiring Mind uh, uh, a number of issues back, the average American gets 3,000 microjolts of that kind of message every day. That's just astounding, you know. Unless here, you, this is one of, the, one of the benefits of being here. No billboards, no commercials, no, no nothing, you know, except for lunch, maybe. Um, we're just fasting from all of that. But imagine that kind of conditioning. This is what we're up against. So it's really potent. And we get it not only out there with the seductions of things, but with our mind as well. We can be having an okay time and then it's just, mm, well, what would do it? And I came across this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon a number of uh, years ago, he says, uh, Calvin says, here I am, happy and content. Next frame. But not euphoric. (laughs) Next frame. So now I'm no longer happy and content. I'm unhappy and discontent. My day is ruined. A last frame. I should have quit thinking while I was ahead. It's so seductive. What would make it a better moment? There we go. Non-greed, non-grasping, is the capacity to let go of that wanting and that craving. And it feels really good when we do. To let go, this is one aspect, and then it, it flowers as... Another quality that I'll I'll mention in a a moment. Letting go. Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you'll have complete freedom. And your troubles with the world will come to an end. Very simple. But it's so hard to let go. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, there's a great story from Ajahn Sumedho, one of my favorite quotable teachers about letting go. 
about his own practice. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You, simply, you simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Can we simplify our practice to just those two words? Just let go. It's so simple and so challenging to do. But therein lies freedom. And as we cultivate that capacity to let go in the moment, in relationship to the pleasant experience, not that we shouldn't experience it fully, Please don't misunderstand that. You don't want to let go like a hot potato and say, oh no, I better not enjoy this. That's just another kind of aversion. But to fully be with it and then let go gracefully as it passes, as it turns into something else, that capacity to do that carries over and we see the freedom, the, the ease that comes from that. And it flowers as generosity because then we're not trying to fill ourselves up with the next experience and there's a kind of self-sufficiency that is abundant and enjoys the overflow of that abundance in giving and this is the other aspect of non-greed that I'll just mention briefly generosity the first paramita of the Buddha in the Ten Perfections, which he taught even before meditation or even before um, wisdom or renunciation or even before sila, even before morality. He understood this is something we can all understand, how good it feels to share. Our generosity is just our currency of caring, that it feels so good to let go and share and feel that interconnectedness. On one retreat, it was, um, again, a retreat that, I, I have, that happened many years. That same retreat I mentioned in the last talk, 1979, um, I had this experience, the power of generosity. It was quite um, profound for me. I was washing the dishes. They used to sign you up you didn't, they didn't take volunteers at that time. You got assigned. I don't know how it works now in the retreat center or, or here, but you're assigned to wash. Uh, I was washing the pots this day, or these, these days. And I kind of, it seemed like so much. And I, 
They were just piled high. For any pot washers here in the crowd, we all bow to you. Um, and I kind of say, oh, God, I'll never get to the next sitting. I really wanted to get to the next sitting. And it just felt like I was kind of burdened with this. And Okay, I'll do this. And in the middle of this, out from the uh, staff room, which in those days was connected right to the, um, the dishwashing area, comes the, the manager of the retreat center, uh, one of the two managers, who had s- something in his hand wrapped in tin foil, aluminum foil. And he looked at me, and he looked at what he was holding, and he whispered, here, this is for you, for all your good work. I started to have a whole different reason. Okay, I'll wash the pots, I'll scrub the pots, maybe this is okay. And I wiped my hands, and then I opened the surprise. And in this aluminum foil was this big piece of cheesecake with glaze and nuts, and it's like a lot. And by this time of the retreat, an extra slice of bread at tea time, you know, it was like a big deal for me, right? And besides, it, it was big, you know, so, and you, you naturally start to have that generosity of heart, and it was big. So I decided I would just break it into a few different pieces. And I put the pieces in the bowls of people that I connected with. In those days, you, you're, you had your own space, you held on to your bowl, and you know, so you had your own space, and I knew where my friends' bowls were. There's not that much else to to notice, you know. <laughs> so I I put it into, I broke it into four pieces and put it into three different friends' bowls, and um, waited until tea time. And each person, as they came to their bowl, you know, I, I got the delight of seeing their jaw drop, and one person broke hers into and put it into the bowl of one other person who was my buddy Howie Cohn, who I mentioned at the beginning. I ate my piece very mindfully, I can assure you. It was great. And it lasted for about 90 seconds, I would imagine. But what I understood from that was that from that one piece of cheesecake, 27 years later, I feel a connection with five other people. Howie, the manager, the three people, I put it in my bowl, their bowls. One piece of cheesecake that lasted for 90 seconds. Isn't that amazing? That's how it works. Our, our generosity is the currency of caring that we... It's the stuff that carries our caring and our connection with others. In the flowering of generosity, there's so many different ways we can express it in the world through our caring for our loved ones, through our service. And I know there are many people here whose lives or their livelihood in one way or another has that spirit of service to it. And it feels great, doesn't it? So in the moment, every moment that you are here with the pleasant, without grasping, you are cultivating the 
habit of letting go, both in this moment and the, in the future. <clears throat> okay, on to the next. <clears throat> aversion turning into non-aversion or loving-kindness. Every moment that you are here with the, ple- the unpleasant experience, if you have a heart that says, okay, this too, I don't have to contract and run away. I can be open to this too, this sadness or this shame or this fear or this whatever it is, this rage. Or, ah, okay, we are learning very directly capacity to open up in a fearless way to what's here and open up in a friendly way to this moment. We are planting very potent seeds. And this flowers as a heart of kindness, of metta. I want to talk about the different levels of love and loving-kindness that we can experience. The first level, and if you've done any metta practice, um, you can see the, the, the power of it, sometimes the, the, uh, the challenge of it, but the power of it is loving-kindness towards ourselves. This is, as I mentioned, I think in a previous talk, one of the most important things that we can do. Because if we can truly start to appreciate who we are and get who we are, again, there's this sense of completeness and wholeness, not looking outside of ourselves, but then we can allow to shine all of our noble qualities. But... It's not so easy to really love ourselves for many of us. But it is possible, as I mentioned before. How can we do this? How can we really befriend ourselves? First, I want to ask you to reflect with me. If you met somebody who got your jokes, who had your taste, who got your take on the world, and who really understood how you see it, how would you feel about meeting that person? I'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? Where have you been all my life? There's one person who gets all your jokes, (laughs) who understands your take on the world, who has your taste, and who really gets it, right? The unfortunate thing is that they're living right inside of you. But as Albert Einstein calls it, an optical delusion of consciousness from a different perspective, we somehow don't 
relate to ourselves in the same way we would relate to anyone else. If you were outside of yourself and somebody introduced you, you'd be tickled pink. How cool, this neat friend that I now have. So I've discovered that the key to loving kindness or one key to loving kindness is really getting who you are from another vantage point. And I'd like to share with you something that I stumbled upon as, I'm, as I was doing uh, intensive metta. The first time I did an extended period of uh, extended uh, Brahma Vihara practice. I was doing loving kindness for myself for a few days and it was going okay. It was kind of getting there, but it wasn't quite boing, you know, hitting pay dirt. And I, you know, I was okay with that. I wasn't trying to force it. But in one moment, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. And I just thought for a moment, why, why why does that person love me so much? And what I did was just went with that inquiry to see what she saw. So I'd like to uh, invite you, if you would be willing, to just play around with this and try this as an experiment, as a practice. Sit up in a meditative way and um, close your eyes. And I'd like you to bring somebody to mind or some being to mind who you have a really warm connection with where it's easy for the most part, not a complicated relationship, but an easiness and a love that you share. It, it can be a child, it can be a pet, it can be any, any being who you just really share a love between you. And now bring them right here into your energy field. Just imagine they're right here. If you can have an image or just a sense, a felt sense of them. And feel that energy that you share. It feels so good when the two of you come together. That we call love. And now, for a moment, inhabit their reality and imagine, if you can, seeing through their eyes or getting from their perspective who they see when they're with their friend. What about them, what about their friend touches them so much that they just love being with this person? Get a sense of the different qualities that that touch them. Your kindness, your playfulness, or your sincerity, or goodness, or whatever. All the different, don't have to stop at one, all the different aspects that really touch them. 
Just drink yourself in. Get who you are for a moment. And if you can connect with those qualities that touch your friends so and so in make them enjoy being with you. Now, let your consciousness come back right inside your own body and stay connected with those qualities. Just from the inside out, feel those qualities because they shine through whether or not you think they can. They, they're touching your friends. Even those times that you get lost or you feel small or whatever, that quality, that essence still is shining through. And from the inside, let yourself appreciate and feel. This is a classic way to do the metta, to reflect on one's noble qualities. And with that reflection, just send some appreciation and kindness to yourself. May I really be happy. May I feel all the goodness inside and share it well. Okay. If you like, you can open your eyes. If you want to stay where you are, that's fine too. I'm just wondering how many people got at least a glimpse of what their friend saw. Just a show of hands. Well, if you got a glimpse, the jig is up. You can't pretend you don't have that capacity. And then it's just a matter of keeping on watering and nurturing that truth that you see and more and more connect with that, those qualities. You do have that capacity to develop happiness. And in fact, when you think about it, there's something that's been guiding you for a long time. Even if you feel like you've just been beating yourself up for most of your life, okay? Is there, is there anybody here who doesn't want to be happy? And if you don't want to be happy, well, then maybe that is your way of being happy. If you want to be happy, then there's a part of you that really is rooting for you, that's really cheering for you, that's saying, yes, I really want to be happy. Sometimes the yearning feels so much of a longing that it seems like it's painful, but there's really a very pure place inside of you that wants to go for happiness. Why else would you be here doing this bizarre thing for the last week or weeks or a month or whatever. Something in you wants to go for that. Isn't that so? So it's just connecting with that sincere wish that you do want to be happy and then watering it and seeing who you really are. So that's one aspect, meta for self. And we can't overdo it. This is not cheating This is our greatest gift to the world. 
then there is metta between people. Not a kind of bargaining, okay, I'll love you if you love me, but a true expansiveness that just is there appreciating and loving your friend, whoever you thought of, and feeling that goodwill. And it's so beautiful. And it's very different than the near enemy of loving kindness, which is attachment. Attachment is a contraction, a wanting, a fear-based, oh, they've got my love, and if I don't, if they leave, then I won't have it. Or there's a kind of resentment in that that can easily come in, and a kind of contraction. Love is about opening. It's about, it's an expansive quality. Metta is an expansive quality, not a contracting quality. And we can cultivate that for ourselves in relationship to others. And the difference between attachment and loving kindness is the difference between hell and heaven. So again, the choice is ours. Then there's another level of love that I'd like to explore. And that is not just the interpersonal love, which is beautiful, but there is, it's a relational kind of an experience with another human being. This is another level of love, and that is the connection that we all have for the practice, for the Dharma. Sometimes we don't think of it in terms of, of love. There's one quality in, uh, in one of the lists, the different bases of success, that's called citta idipada, where you fall in love with the purity of heart. And it's so compelling that everything else compels by comparison. And perhaps you've touched that here. And I, I had, a, a, again, a, a, an experience where it was a really powerful understanding for me just how important it is to connect with this relation to Dharma and practice. And this is a number of years ago, many years ago, 1975, when, um, see, I don't have much of a short-term memory, but the long-term memory is, you know, is there. Where I was, um, uh, I'd been practicing uh, Vipassana and Buddha Dharma for, uh, for a year or so, a year and a half, and it was so, it was like coming home, I think I said the other night. And yet, I, I come from a, a, a bhakti background, devotional, as I, I think I mentioned, that be here now. I mentioned that, didn't I? I carried around like a Bible. Did I mention that here? I don't know, it was maybe a, it was another. I gave a talk this week in Vermont, and I talked about it then. Well, I carried around be here now like a Bible for about three years. And Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji in that book, Ram Dass's guru, just opened my heart in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I 
I, that's what brought me out to, uh, to Colorado in that, that first summer. And I, I think I said, I asked Ramdas, well, what about meditation? He said, go check out this guy Goldstein. So I, it was great doing my practice, but there I was in New York City, and there was no sangha at the time. Uh, and I was diligently doing it, but it felt kind of dry. And I missed that juiciness of the devotional side. Uh, and Joseph heard that Ramdas was giving this small class in New York, and he said, why don't you go uh, check out, you know, you see, if, you know, see if that will support your practice. So I went to Ramdas to see if it would work, if I, he would allow me in the class and I'd be accepted. And we had this exchange, uh, among other things, there was a lot that happened in that exchange, but the the key exchange was um, you know I told him that I had gotten so into uh, meditation and vipassana and all and he said well uh, you know this is a, a devotional scene are you you know how do you feel about that I said oh I think I can I, I can really get into it and then he said well let me ask you um, how do you feel um, about Jesus? He said, do you love Jesus? <laughs> and I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> you know, I really like Jesus. But I don't know if I love like you think maybe I should. Uh, and he said, oh, okay. And he said, well, um, how do you feel about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? And I said, I like Krishna. I like him a lot. And it's this expression of celebration and the divine. I don't know if I love Krishna, but I like him a lot. He said, well, um, all right, well, let me ask you straight out. How do you feel about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, Ramdas, I was raised in the Jewish faith and although I honor it deeply as my heritage and my roots my idea of God got distorted maybe it was a Bible that I a picture Bible that I had when I was young but there this image when I hear the word God has often been this very big powerful, scary man with a beard and a book and a pen saying, you'll have a good day and you'll have a bad day. And so, you know, it kind of put the fear of God into me, as they say. And I said, when I think of God, when I hear the word God, what I translated into is the Dharma which to me is the, just the perfection of it all, the mystery, the, the amazing natural unfolding. And, and so that's what makes sense to me. And then he said, oh, okay, well, let me ask you, do you love the Dharma? And that one, I said, oh, yeah, definitely. He said, you sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, well, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. He said, well, 
go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, go ahead, say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah, I'll say it with you. Go ahead, you say it, I'll say it with you. I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said it about three or four times until one time I really felt it. I love you, Dharma. And in the moment that I connected with it, tears started coming down my face. At which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet, you know. (laughs) And it was a very important moment for me to see how much I loved the Dharma, loved the truth, loved the purity, the goodness of things. And I think that's true of everybody here. You wouldn't be here if you did not love the Dharma in your way if you did not love truth, if you did not love goodness, if you were not touched by a purity of heart that kept you coming and doing this very um, profound and, and difficult practice, you love the Dharma. And let yourself feel that because it's a beautiful source of nourishment for practice. So there's loving ourselves and loving others, loving the Dharma. And then there's even a deeper level of love than loving the Dharma. Because even in that, there is a duality of me loving the Dharma. And the highest form of love in my experience and understanding is the love that comes from emptiness where there's no barriers, there's no separation, there's not me loving something else. It is just love loving itself. And in that, there's nothing that needs to be figured out. There's no subject, there's no object. It is simply the way things are. Awareness, awareing. Love, loving. Every moment of mindfulness, we are cultivating that capacity to befriend the moment and open our hearts to the point when there's no barriers or separation, that emptiness just is revealed and shines through. This is... A quote from Sumedho, when the heart is free from illusion of self, then there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being. Now on to the last. Non-greed, non-hatred, a generosity of heart, kindness, and non-delusion. Delusion is confusion leading to suffering. What delusion is, is not seeing clearly the truth. It is taking what is impermanent to be permanent. What is a source of suffering, grasping, to be a source of happiness, 
and taking what is basically selfless, this selfless nature of reality, to be a solid self. That is delusion. Non-delusion is seeing clearly everything is changing. Grasping at changing experience is painful, is dukkha. And this mind-body process itself is continually changing, so there's nothing, there's no abiding entity to whom life is happening. Rather, life is happening through this being as an expression of this being rather than to this being. There's a, uh, I love a little exercise that, um, um, I think it was Buckminster Fuller who, who first pointed to this, and I, I love it as just a pointing to anatta, to the selfless nature of experience. Instead of taking ourselves to be some fixed entity, some body, instead of taking ourselves to be a noun, just for a moment, see if you can relate to yourself as a verb, as a field of experience. You might even, if if it helps, close your eyes for a moment and just rather than thinking of this solid body, unchanging or entity to whom life is happening, see the flow of experience when you relate to it as a verb, as this mind-body process of thoughts, of emotions and sensations that are just playing out in this pattern called me, for want of a better term. And in that moment, there is an ease and a freedom that we don't have to make it better or aggrandize or defend. It is just life expressing itself in this form. And when that separate sense of self falls away, the beauty of the freedom that comes from non-delusion is extraordinary. That is the free mind, the free heart, that's not taking self to be real. I had an experience a number of years ago um, that really pointed to this to me that perhaps you can relate to in your own way. When you, uh, it, was, it, was a, a re- it was also a, a fall retreat. And at one point I was just kind of, I don't know how I fell into this place, but I was just kind of cruising. And I was you know, sitting longer hours and uh, and fairly clear, and it was just all happening. I don't know how that happened, but it was, you know, there I was. And this one day, as I was in the middle of a, a longer sit, somebody came into the hall whose practice I respected so much. She came down, and in these, sometimes I would keep my eyes open just to kind of stay grounded just to have it gazed in front of me, and she sat right right near me, right in front of me. And after about 10 minutes, she started just 
having a classic case of the nods, just like that. And it made me wonder, I know what the nods are like very well. I've spent countless hours in the nods. And I realized tomorrow we could be switching. I could be the one doing the nods, and she could be the one having the... Uh, a, a, a clear meditation and at that point in, in a moment it's like the whole room spun around and instead of it being me with this clear meditation it was these different energies where here was energy and clarity here was sloth and torpor here was loving kindness here was calm here was you know whatever and it was all interchangeable parts. Just the energy could change at any moment to any other being. And to take credit for my experience was completely absurd. I don't know how I got there. And in that moment, it was, it was so freeing to see, I don't, I'm not running the show. All I can do is just be here for whatever energy is coming through at the time. And honoring that, that paradox of delighting and not taking credit or blame is really freeing. Then we can see through this, the, the self into the selfless nature of reality. And then we see that impermanence is not such a bad deal. It's just the way things are. And out of impermanence comes infinite creativity. Out of the suffering comes compassion. Out of what we take to be anatta, anatta does not hurt. There's a sense of interconnectedness. In the moment that we are seeing experience without taking ownership of it, we are sowing the seeds for that wisdom. So every single moment, every single moment, we are planting the seeds that transform our suffering into happiness through not grasping at the pleasant, through not pushing away the unpleasant, and not taking ownership of experience as who we are, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And I'll I'll close with this quote, one of my favorites from Shantideva. Because this is what we're doing in every moment, the miracle of awakening. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter 
made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.